Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 38b, Money Creation with Anna Carvers. So this is part two of our conversation, but it's also a standalone episode. So if you didn't listen to the first one, that's okay, you can just start with this one. We will start with discussing the A12 blockades of Extinction Rebellion for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll discuss the topic of money creation. This episode was recorded in August, and the blockades that we are discussing took place in September. 9th of September they started, and they blocked the road every day at 12 o'clock for 27 consecutive days, and it was completely peaceful. I don't think anything like that happened before in the Netherlands. Maybe I'm wrong, just let me know. But I can't think of a historical example. And I think these blockades were also quite successful, because there was a vote in the Dutch government. Anyway, some steps were taken. But I just wanted to mention this so that it's clear that our conversation took place before these blockades. And there's another reason. I mentioned this because if you remember episode 24 with Hannah Prince, I spoke with her also about Extinction Rebellion and then we were discussing the number of 17.5 billion euros that the Dutch government is spending yearly on fossil subsidies. So by the time that we recorded this episode, the figure had been updated to 30 billion euros. But now, not even two months later, the Dutch government has presented their own calculations and it's between 39 billion euros and 46 billion euros. And chances are that by the time that you hear this, it might be 100 billion euros or something like that. Anyway, the, <laughs> the truth is slowly coming out, at least about the fossil subsidies. Yeah, okay, we took a little break, but we, we were talking a little bit and uh, <laughs> I was thinking about, okay, this demonstration is performative, it's very serious, but it's also kind of, of a play. And why is it so effective? And then we were talking about Plato's allegory of the cave and how sometimes you have to show what they say in writing, right? Show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. But there's yeah. some things that you cannot tell for whatever reason. You cannot put it in reason. Yeah. A lot of climate scientists are part of Extinction Rebellion or other... Yeah, Scientist Rebellion. Yeah. yeah. So they're the ones that know what's going on, but they're, they're saying already like, okay, yeah, but we tried writing research papers. We yeah. tried going in peaceful, normal demonstrations, but people weren't listening, so we're going to sit there. So I think there's something in there, something deeper in the sense that you're also saying it's not about conveying the perfect message to people that, okay, if we tell it to the people in this way, what's going on, they will go into action. It's something else beyond words. Yeah, I think, you know, it's performative to say that I am willing to give up my freedom to convey this message. And I think that that might be a way for people to get on with climate crisis. But I also think that the disruption, and then you need to help me to get this back to your question, how the disruption make space for the climate crisis, right? Because we block the road and then the media start writing about climate crisis, whereas otherwise uh, they wouldn't. I mean, if giving, it's like saying, I used to be a smoker for, for yeah. many years and 
And giving information doesn't help. It didn't help me yeah. quit smoking because I knew how it was bad for me. I knew yeah. I should stop. I knew yeah. everything. But it, exactly. it wasn't, well, it's an addiction. It's a really good comparison. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think that the disruption maybe turns this question into something existential. And that helps people to break through, you know, the cognitive dissonance or the pluralistic ignorance and to get real yeah, and to cut the bullshit. And I think that the, you know, amount of the new people, the people that start to join XR in the past year and then specifically the A12 actions, they were able to receive this message. They saw us doing this and then it became existential for them, I think. And they're like, cut the bullshit, I'm also going to get arrested. Yeah. Um, so I think in that sense, it conveys something that you cannot express with words, mm -hmm. which also depends on authority, you know, like some of the things that we are saying, if they were said by someone else, I think they would have wider resonance, but we don't have the authority. And so we disrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, it is also happening that the things that you are saying are also being Yes, we notice now that we're yeah. taken more seriously also by news media and also because, for instance, we're pretty well organized and so numbers in terms of arrests and stuff like that, we're always uh, really careful with those things and also um, editors are much more perceptible to receiving climate science from us now. And I think one thing that you just mentioned before is that there's also a question of power um, in the sense that so much misinformation has been has been spread and we're up against so much lobby interests and stuff like that yeah people are now saying because we have these heat waves one of the things they're saying is that the meteorologists are using yeah. different colors on yeah. the weather maps to be alarmist or that they're using different measure devices because first they used to measure temperature at the ground level and now two meters up. And uh, yeah, so that's... that's. There's always gonna like some... And I think it's great that other people are interacting with these people, but I'm just not going to do it. These people will always find a way. Yeah, and I can recognize their feelings of despair. Yeah. How, how long have you been with Extinction Rebellion? Uh, since 2019. Okay, yes. so four yeah. years. Yeah. And have there been results in the sense if you have if you look, if you evaluate and you look back? Yeah, for sure. Like for instance, uh, there's now a citizens assembly uh, coming in the Netherlands, and yeah. that really is related. We had a in 2020 we did a whole re uh, rebellion week uh, on uh, which where the demand was citizens assembly. And also the biggest pension fund of the Euro of Europe, who is based in Amsterdam, um, went out of um, divested, mm -hmm. and this was not a XR action alone. Uh, for instance, ABP Volsuvrij had been working on this since 2015, and also other people have been working on it. I think, or maybe I'm wrong. No, it was. I, I think it was just them. Um, and then at some point XR joined and we did uh, sit-ins there and because my pension is also with them, yeah. which I don't really expect to receive, but still, <laughs> I think it's good that they divest. I just cannot see how we're going to, we are going to get our pensions, you know, if we're facing like collapse 
financial crises are going to get a lot worse than we've had before. Uh, yeah. All these stranded assets. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not counting on it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And I think also the growth of the movement now and, you know, us being taken more seriously, people coming around. And I think the fossil fuel subsidies is going to be our biggest success. You know, the problem is, I think what I was, what I mentioned before about, you know, lack of knowledge regarding the importance of activism. There was this professor quotes in the Guardian that said, the history of emancipation is a history of disruption. When I go back to my history books in high school, it's it's really weird how there was not much focus on the importance of activism. And I think that if people knew the history of activism, they would also be more likely to join us now. So this is also a thing that we've been doing, you know, like so many of the rights that you have, people have been fighting for. And so I also see my activism, you know, as a way to thank for the rights that I enjoy. You know, that I acknowledge that some people fought for for the rights that I have and that I can, you if, know, if they did it, then this is your fight. Yeah, it's 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 like a, a lineage in a way. Yeah. And what are the demands of XR? So our first demand is in Dutch it's wees eerlijk, but in English, which is be honest, but in English it's tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is act now, and in Dutch it's do what nodig is, do what's necessary. And the third is a citizens' assembly on um, climate policy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But not the, the fossil fuels is. And uh, I need to so add, we have a uh, fourth, which is actually the zero. Uh, ah, yeah. Before the climate the, justice before the demands. Yeah. yeah. And the fossil subsidies fit those demands and also the principles and values that we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's the one, that's what's written now on the wall yeah. after the 812. Yeah. And so I think. The beauty of it is that it's really easy for people because it's a no-brainer, you know, like you you almost can't be against it. Um, and we really see the VNO and CW, the no, I should I should say like the bigger corporations uh, lobby organization yeah. is really moving against us. And I think that is only a good thing, you know, uh, it shows that we're hitting where it hurts. Uh, but they're doing, they had this advertisement and then they recently had this Twitter post where they said, if we end the fossil subsidies, then we need to do, and then all these drama things that are, you know, not true at all. Yeah, society is going to collapse yeah. if, if you stop. Uh... And the thing is that if we don't do it, society is going to collapse, you know, so it's this upside down world and they're also really keeping us from uh, talk shows. So... They know that if the companies that they represent or that are part of their organization face an XR rebel, they just don't have a leg to stand on. Because what they're doing is at odds with, you know, the Paris Agreement. What they're doing is at odds with maintaining a habitable planet. They don't want us to uh, sit across from the table. Yeah, I noticed that there's yeah. when a lot of times when there's discussion about uh, protests, they're not activists are not yeah. there, and rarely scientists are invited. Yeah. Usually, it's it's politicians or uh, yeah, yeah, like that. And why we want a citizens assembly is because the politicians have this four-year mandate and they need to be re-elected. Yeah, and so for them, it's much more difficult to make, uh, you know, to. Um, to formulate this adequate climate policy. And also uh, in France, for instance, they had a citizens' assembly on the 
climate policy and you saw that the um, proposals that got from there were much more, were so much better than what the government was doing. And then people are sometimes worried that, you know, a citizens assembly, then it's just going to be the loudest voices in the room and the people who are privileged because these other people don't have time to take off work. But it's really much more designed than that in the sense that it's like um, there's a, a representation of the society is ensured. And it's also, so it, there's this random group that... Um, gets into the mix and then out of that random group there is a representation of society and then there is moderators to ensure that everyone gets speaking time and everyone can bring their own experts into the room and there's you know again then a discussion and all these people are compensated so yeah yeah, it also had been proven very useful with uh, for instance abortion rights in ireland and gay marriage i think also there yeah, so this is going to happen now, and and this is what you attribute to uh, the XR protests. Well, I mean, there's also the Bureau Burgerberaad who worked really hard yeah. on it, um, but we definitely had a role to play here. Yeah. So the the, the demand of the uh, protests, at least uh, on the banners, is stop fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, subsidies. Yeah. Not stop fossil fuels, but yeah. subsidies. And. You know, we were talking about the tragedy of the horizons. And yeah. this is a banker, yeah. basically, who was speaking about that. And I never really thought that much about the role. Why is this? I mean, if you you only have a few words, you want to have one message, right? Why yeah. is it stop fossil fuel subsidies? Why is that the most important thing? Uh, I'm not sure if it's the most important thing, but I think it's evidently a no-brainer. And so it's really easy to get people behind. And I also think it's a very important thing. Yeah. Um, because it ensures, like, so the Dutch government is spending 30 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies. And it's really keeping the system that is killing us in place. And it's only the climate budget in the Netherlands is around uh, 7 billion and... Like the subsidies for the renewables are 3 billion. Mm -hmm. So they are saying that they're doing climate policy, but their foot is on the brake, like much harder than they're pressing the speed. So yeah, I think evidently this is something that public money shouldn't be going to. Where where should it be going? (laughs) And I think this is the beauty of the third demand that... Um, people sometimes say that uh, we are not democratic and I think that civil disobedience is a fundamental part of a democracy and also we're very democratic in the sense that we're not saying what needs to be happening we're just raising the alarm bell to ensure that other people start doing what's necessary and to ensure that uh, people know about the urgency of the crisis yeah so we're not saying what needs to be happening. No, you're just saying what needs to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and I and I think that, you know, this demand is a bit of an exception to that. But um, in a way, I think all the people who join the protest are, you know, despairing about the climate crisis, not necessarily only about the fossil fuel subsidies. I never really thought that much about money. I mean, money is really... For me, something that uh, my goal is not to have to think about it. Yeah. (laughs) 
So if I, of course, I think about it if I don't have enough, but yeah. uh, if, if I have enough money to just like do basic things and I'm not that interested in it. And I like one of the reasons is that I think if, if, uh, if you look in Plato's cave, you know, what are the things that are, you know, like if you think about science, you can think about, well, this may be about shadows on the wall, but it's maybe connected to something deeper, yeah. you know. And with money, I just have the feeling it's just something we made up mm. uh, to say that a piece of paper has value or a coin yeah. has value. And I don't see it has any connection in to something like actual or real or something. Yeah. But the truth is that this is a lazy excuse because I stopped thinking about it. Mm. And uh, I actually found out in your one of your papers, uh, you quote someone else that there's a term for this, a money, what is it, monetary silencing? Yeah. Can you explain that? I think that most people never start thinking about money. They just assume it to be there. And I was definitely one of those people. I even, I studied economics and I didn't uh, question money back then. It was only when I started working at Triodos Bank and at this meeting um, and kind of accidentally stumbled up on that Triodos Bank also created money. And I thought it was only the big banks who created money and that we only did this thing where, you know what it's called, an intermediary. So the bank converts savings into loans. And my colleague explained to me how money creation works. And it's so simple, but it kind of took me two or three meetings because I was like, no, it's, it can't be that simple and, and, and easy. And I think what monetary silencing is about is, uh, which is another term, uh, or another way to put it is the depoliticization of money. Uh, and so, as you said, like to um, disconnect money from material stuff. And uh, because how we create money has distributive consequences. So it... it so what we pick as money and how that gets created and how it gets distributed really has material effects. And I think you really describe it nicely. Another, like often you will hear people say that money is just an intermediary or money is uh, neutral. And I think those, that idea and, uh, is, um, are examples of monetary silencing and actually... Jakob Feinig, this is his term. Uh, he has a really nice definition in the book that I don't know by heart, but it's something like when people do not connect their money to political action, uh, do not see, and he puts it somewhere else nicely. He says, when today when people discuss um, rights, they no longer discuss money creation. And previously, this has been the case. And it's kind of this flow throughout history where money gets politicized and depoliticized. Yeah, but that's pretty much uh, describing me because that's how I relate to money. I think I did some economy in, in high school, but it's going as far as that I know that uh, first you had bartering, so just uh, change, yes, changing Yes, and, so, and so this is false. Okay. And uh, I just remembered it better. It's something like that people don't relate to money as political agents. Uh, and I, I think I just said political action, right? Um, but this whole idea of this... Okay, so there is this... Uh, the former chief economist of the ECB, of the European Central Bank, Peter Praat, he has this... He did this speech a few years ago where he says like... And he, he even makes a disclaimer in the beginning, like it's not exactly like this, but uh, I'm just going to do it anyway. Yeah. 
Uh, and this is uh, a trick that economists pull more often. And he says, you know, there was this entrepreneur and uh, there was this barter economy and then he found these shells and they were durable and there were also a couple of them. And then they found out it just saved time that they could use the shells instead of finding an exact one-on-one exchange for the goods that they had. Yeah, so the shell stands for, I don't know, a chicken or something because it's easier to carry a shell around than a chicken. If I give you the shell, then... But also 10 shells stands for a chicken and then something else stands for five shells and you don't need to cut your chicken. You can just exchange five shells uh, for whatever, you know, stuff like that. And so I, you you, quant- you start to quantify the world. Yeah, but the funny thing with this is if you ask an economist, okay, cool, when, this, when did this happen? They yeah. can never answer you. Why? Because there is no historical data, there's no historical empirical data that this actually happened. And there is historical evidence for for a whole other way in which my money came into the world. And that is in uh, Sumer, uh, you had these a pretty hierarchical society where debts were kept track of through a kind of uh, yeah, a ledger and For instance, you also have the uh, uh, Felix Martin economist who says that money is the immaterial um, keeping track of each each other's debts. And when it becomes physical, that is the currency, I think he says. And back then in Sumer, you also... So that was kind of the money system. And then uh, the things, the stuff that you could pay with would vary a lot. Uh, so it, it, it could be lapis lazuli, this mineral, it could be a sheep, it could be wh- whatever. And so there was this uh, system. Yeah, so I, so I was interrupting you because you said this thing about barter. Yeah, so then, but then, so instead of saying, well, the, one person has a, a couple of mangoes, the other one has a chicken, yeah. they change, that's barter. Yeah. But there are two things and yeah. you exchange the one for the other. And then you say after a while, well, mangoes, you know, you can only keep them for so long. That's yeah. you seashells and yeah. the seashells for, stands for this. Yeah. And the, that's the, that's like the, yeah. the uh, official story. Yeah, it's uh, a story that the financial authorities tend to tell. And that's what they tell, that's the model. But then you yeah. say, well, the another historical example is where it's not like uh, I have ma- mangoes and you have a chicken. But I want to buy you a chicken. I want to have chicken and you give it to me and you write down, yeah. I gave you a chicken. Yeah. So in the future, I must give you something back. Yeah. So rather than changing and, two things. And so you could say that it becomes money as soon as this certificate yeah. of he owes me this chicken is expressed in a specific value term. And then that paper starts to circulate. Because you could that this person. So now you have my paper. But when you want to buy something else, you can give this paper that I gave you that yeah, says I owe you else. something, you give it yeah. to someone else. And that's basically money. And that's basically yeah, money. Yeah, when that certificates circulate anonymously. So there is a certain story about money that we have that is being retold in this time, which at least can be criticized. Yeah, where for for which no empirical evidence exists. And I think that it contributes, you know, this shell thing contributes to the idea that money existed prior to humans and that gives it a certain natural quality and that helps also to depoliticize it um because you're you're not getting angry when it rains i mean by now maybe you do because of the climate crisis but like previously when the humans were not 
uh, interacting, or I should say Westerners, we're not uh, fucking up our ecosystems. Um, we're not influencing the climate. You know, you wouldn't get angry with rain because that's just the way it happened. And yeah. so having little money is just like a cloud, you know? You can't do anything yeah. about it. Yeah, that, I mean, I learned something now because basically I was just saying, yeah, the Barta thing, I wanted to get to somewhere else. We didn't yeah, yeah, even yeah. get there yet. But yeah. so the Barta thing is already uh, not the way it's, because that's, this is what I learned in econ yeah. economy class exactly. as well. Yeah. And then there's even people writing that um, these Barter situations come about when people who are used to money no longer have money uh, and they start to barter. Uh, but before that, it was much more this uh, taps kind of society. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Also, because, for instance, it was much more um, relied a lot, a lot more on uh, the harvest, for instance. Like, all your in the harvest people suddenly would have a lot more um, to spend because they yeah. harvested their crops. So they want to sell their crops then and they want to get something back that they can and, use. Yeah. And before that, it was much more taps. And so that was when the taps were settled. Yeah. I have to think about this more, but I'm really interested in this concept of justice, which we just yeah. talked about. Plato's cave is part of the yeah. Republic, and it's all about what what is justice. Yeah. And I, one of the translation of justice is in Greek is having one's own. Okay. So you have what's yours, I have what's mine. mine yeah. But more like it yeah. belongs to you. It doesn't mean like uh, you want to have it because it doesn't belong to you and now it belongs to you, but yeah. it always already belonged uh, to you. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this natural idea of money, also, you know, gold a few centuries ago, is also in the interest of the wealthy, because it's easier for them to claim that what they have is what they deserve. It's a representation of their contribution. Feinig also makes a nice analysis of this in his book, Moral Economies of Money. And I think approaching money as a political question, or more specifically, money creation or monetary arrangements, all puts all those things into question so that this was even the first step so the second step i remember is that uh, or maybe the second and third step is that uh, okay let's say we had seashells or something like that after a while uh, it became something like gold or or diamond and then they made coins and then you knew oh yeah this coin like because of the stamp of the king or whatever is on there uh, this coin is this big so it has this value and a smaller coin has less value the, so the gold itself was valuable and that was the value that was bartered. And then the next step was that uh, people didn't use gold coins anymore, but the bank has a reserve of gold. So if they had like a, a million uh, dollars or whatever, yeah. they would need a, a value of a million dollars worth of gold in their reserves. So uh, it was kind of decoupled, like the, the, the bank note is not a value, but you know that if yeah, I mean, in theory, you could go to the bank and get that value of, of gold. Yeah. I think this is also the financial authorities narrative. And it also has this modern uh, take on it, you know, money getting more uh, complex and abstract throughout time. And now we're at kind of the height of the development of money. And um, I think, for instance, David Graeber's book, that is very insightful um, with regards to how... Um, money creation changed both throughout time and in different places. So it's not like this linear development of something, but things were invented in China, then started happening in another place. Then they went away because there was a crisis or, you know, a change of power or, for instance, the Dark Ages. 
Um, and then new things come up. So for instance, I think in the uh, 18th century or even maybe still the 19th century in the States, there were places where 6,000 different currencies were uh, circulating. Mm -hmm. And the Bank of England, which was kind of the first central bank as they exist today, was founded in 1694. So the way we organize money today is relatively re recent. Yeah. Uh, so it's not set in stone. And that is, uh, you know, gives me energy because we can change it again. Because it has been changing uh, already. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's for me, it's really complex question. But so can you explain me how? So my idea is if I borrow a lot, 100 euros from you. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have, let's say you have a thousand euros, I borrow a hundred euros, so then you have 900 euros. Yeah. But then I pay it back to you after a month with some interest and then you have like a thousand and ten euros yeah. or something. Uh, and I have to get that ten extra euros somewhere else or yeah. whatever, I do some job or something. But yeah. basically, and I also know that, yeah, bank, the, the, like the central bank can create money because not all the money is connected to the amount of gold anymore but you still need it's to not yeah it's not connected yeah yeah so my story was still there was still like maybe 10 percent needs to be so that's okay that's out of the window already yeah, yeah. but still i my idea was then okay then the government introduces uh this amount of money in society yeah. that can circulate yeah okay okay i'm gonna uh, i think so that that all, all of that is not true. Okay, good. And if people <laughs> do not believe me, they can go to this. I'll I'll explain it. And yeah. if you want to reread it, or do not believe me, um, then there is this really great article by the Bank of England from 2014. It's called uh, "Money Creation in the Modern World." I think it repeats what I'm, or it's 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 very similar. So when speaking for the European Monetary Union. The EU gives the mandate to create money to the central bank, to the ECB. So money creation is double entry bookkeeping. So banks always have a balance. And when you enter the same amount to both sides of the balance, you create money. And, and, and this just happens in a computer and it's just a number and then enter. And central bank, that's the government. No. So the ECB is separate from the governments. Yeah. That is also very important to them. It's called central bank independence. Right. And so this ECB but was... But they're supposed to be kind of a neutral institution in, yes. in the society. Yes. Yeah. They're not there to make a yeah. profit. Uh, well, that's not to be said. They're not there to perform the government's policies. And this was devised in the 92 Maastricht Treaty. Yeah, that this independence or central bank neutrality, uh, you can also refer to it actually means that they act um, that that their actions that their monetary policy uh, actions are always uh, market neutral so they that they don't uh, benefit a certain market uh, and by market i mean the index they can uh, have policies and interventions but they're not supposed to influence the market so they have to be yeah. neutral they yeah. It cannot be that they do something and, and the shares yeah. of one company go and up. And market is all the stock listed companies yeah. in this case. I think it's always really important to define market. Uh, we, the term gets used all the time. And, you know, when you go to economic theory, um, market is defined as um, both consumers and suppliers having no effect on the price. Yeah. 
And so there rarely you can say, okay, and, and this is then a competitive market, but that rarely happens. Um, and I think economics really lacks in an analysis of power, uh, how that's always, um, you know, power as an explanatory factor is always missing. But uh, so that's another story. Um, so the ECB um, actually does not create a lot of money. So they produce the central bank reserves, which are only accessible for commercial banks. And um, the ECB provides institutions, banks, with a banking license. And that allows them to create a claim on legal tender. Oh yeah, that's important. The, so they create central bank reserves and they create also legal tender, which is the payment that cannot be refused as means of payment, which are notes and coins. Mm -hmm. So the money in your wallet. All the other money that you have in your bank account is a claim on legal tender and it's created by commercial banks when they make a loan. Um, and so it's not the case that the government sets the amount of money at all. Um, the ECB has influence over the amount of money that gets created by the commercial banks yeah. through their monetary policy. But then we also saw sometimes that's referred to as pushing a string because it's yeah, it's limited. Yeah, so th this was my intervention of the... Well, this is, I mean, my previous episode was about Bernard Stiegler's philosophy. Yeah. I think this stuff is more complicated, <laughs> at least for me. But so, be because my question was very simple, because if I, if I borrow 100 euros from you, I could just keep it for a month and then give it to you back, maybe with some interest. I mean, that's that's very easy to understand, right? Because you have something, I then you mm -hmm. don't have it, then you get it back with a little bit extra. Yeah. But then how does it work when I uh, take out a loan from, from yeah. the bank? I imagine well, it would they would have a lot of money and they would give it to me and then they would have a little bit less until I give it back. No, so they just create new money. Yeah, so that's the thing I don't... I read it in your paper, but yeah. I don't understand that. So... I borrow, uh, let's say, a thousand euros yeah. because uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you... it's a bank, and then there's a thousand euros extra yeah. created out of nothing. Yeah, exactly. But how does that? I mean, yeah. So this is also what took me a few, uh, took me a couple of hours, but you just it's just created in the by adding the same amount of money to both sides of the bank's balance, and that really is there's nothing more to it. And I remember feeling as if really a rug was pulled away from yeah. me not, like not a rug but really a rug because this thing that you always use and that you always trust that and that you assume to be stable suddenly you realize oh it's plastic in a way right like it's not a stable thing at yeah. all actually like the shadows in Plato's cave right yeah. yes yeah one of the things about the climate crisis and and what do yeah. we need to do and stopping fossil fuel subsidies the yeah. the thing you hear most often if you are beyond the science denial and beyond all that stuff you're like yeah but it's just unrealistic yeah. because the economy yeah. will collapse and i think what is very important is that a public approval Okay, so before I go into the public approval, a very important thing is that the ECB ensures that the claims that are the claims on legal tender created by a commercial bank, so that is the mon all the money in your bank account, they always exchange on par, so one on one with legal tender. So when you go to uh, um, an ATM and you uh, request an amount of money, 
10 euros goes of your bank balance and you have 10 euros cash in your hand. Yeah. And this is uh, ensured by the ECB. And So in that case, money is not created? Well, okay, the other money first got the, the claims on legal tender got created in the first place. But yes, when you withdraw money at, a, at an ATM, it's not created because it, it gets destroyed from your balance sheet. From your, uh, sorry, from your bank account. Fundament, I mean, going back to the barter, as, as a, yeah. that's my fundamental uh, understanding of economics that I know that sometimes you can, I don't know, create money or, or do something yeah. like that. But in, in principle, it's like uh, if I give something to you, I don't have it anymore and you have it. Yeah. Not I give something. I mean, that sounds very positive. Like yeah, It's yeah, like... Yeah. Uh, uh, how do you say that? Uh, uh, that's Dutch, like delen is vermenigvuldigen. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. sharing yeah. and, and yeah. dividing is the same word in Holland. So yeah. dividing is multiplying. Yeah. So uh, what they say about love, if, if you give love to somebody, yeah. you, you create. Uh, but it sounds like it's the yeah. same way with money Some in certain circumstances. I think there is not an infinite amount of money. For instance, there's this modern monetary theory school that says that the amount of uh, money production is determined by the production capacity of a society. And they really argue for money creation uh, staying with the government. Uh, and I'm not so sure. I just haven't gone. I'm, I'm just more busy right now with my problem analysis to start saying anything about solutions yet. Um, but uh, in a way, uh, I do agree with... Um, well, no, let me put it differently. Um, money creation is mobilizing resources and you and a society can determine how they want to mobilize resources. And right now, so money really relies on so much public infrastructure. And in that sense, the fact that banks get to st- uh, keep all their profits is a bit questionable because well, it's, it's, I think it's similar to water companies keeping all their profits because they're just taking something from the earth or oil companies for that matter. They're just taking something from the earth and they're not necessarily adding a lot to it. Okay, with oil and okay, with water, they're also doing something. And it's the same with banks. They're uh, drawing on this resource that is a public resource, namely money. David Graeber has a nice definition of money. He says, money is anything that you expect to get accepted by someone else in the future so it really relies on this it's really a public question and then it's also how it's organized you know through the parliament to the ecb it's also a lot of public infrastructure so the fact that today um um, money monetary arrangements do not work in the interest of the people is a really big issue so for instance since the paris agreement so billions have been created for the fossil fuel industry only. And that hasn't uh, only taken place through money creation, which is lending, also through other forms of finance. Um, but money creation is uh, about uh, 50% of it. So that's huge. Yeah, I'm, I think I have to do another episode entirely about money, because. Yeah. but I'm just trying to understand some basics now. Yeah, yeah. So as I try to summarize, then you're saying um, money is inherently political. Yeah. And money creation is, is a thing. It's a, it's a big thing. Yeah. And 
it's about it's has to do with political choices where you what for what reasons who can create money and for what and it hasn't been like this for a very long time so even the fundamental things that people say yeah but this is how money works yeah yeah but they're constructions in a way um and they're consequential constructions because they have huge consequences of course but so you're saying that all, all those things now are happening already but they're happening in part also to subsidize fossil fuels which is yeah, to finance fossil finance fuels. fossil yeah. fuels and basically to a lot of other things that we know that uh, like the the record heat heat uh, temperatures that we're getting at this moment it's not just saying that oh we're now in the climate crisis because we get these temperatures and it might uh, still rise more now we're actually adding fuel to the flames because there's only more and more fossil fuels being taken out of the ground and we know already that any fossil fuels extra out of the ground will overshoot everything exactly so there and money is a very important part of this whole problematic right well i think it's often overlooked as a policy instrument to uh, accomplish the paris agreement or to close the climate finance gap and so I'm, I would never say that changing monetary arrangements is the solution, is a silver bullet, but I think it's often overlooked and that really has to do with depoliticization of money so that the political and normative consequences of money creation as it exists today are not known to people. And do you have an idea that it could, because the energy transition, that it's going to be very costly, right? To yeah. Uh, just if you think about cities, right? On the, on the long term, cities have to be uh, sustainable cities. Mm-hmm. That means that you have to build a lot of new structures. You yeah. have to, so that all takes a lot of, um, on the global scale. Yeah. So I was just thinking, isn't there a way that, that uh, because people are now talking about geoengineering, yeah. uh, which is quite ironic because I was talking to you before about this conference I was at where yeah. it was about sustainability. There were no climate scientists and one person had this presentation about geoengineering because he said, yeah, basically the best way would be if we would stop burning fossil fuels. But let's be realistic, people are not going to do that. So geoengineering is the next best thing. And we just have to get the whole world to agree about, you know, changing cloud structures, um, which, by the way, it's completely unrealistic. But I talked about that before. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, um, But basically it's saying, well... Um, what if we had a proposal that the whole world could get behind saying, well, this is in all our interests. Let's say it's geoengineering if it would work, right? If yeah. it would solve the climate crisis for sure. Yeah. So then I was thinking if there's such a thing as money creation, yeah. isn't there a way that we could have geoengineering, but monetary engineering yeah. where just the whole yeah. budget needed to fund the transition? Yeah. So Henry Ford said, um, if people understand how money works today, there would be a revolution tomorrow. Okay. And I have this project, it's called Unmuting Money. Mm-hmm. And it's about, uh, so it's something that I rarely get to because of the PhD and then climate activism. It's kind of um, my third on my third on my list. So it, yeah, it doesn't get the attention that I um, would like to give to it. But it's about, you know, making these... Um, the political and normative dimensions of monetary arrangements known to um, um, the wider public. And I think that since the financial crash, 
there has the scholarship uh, on the topic of money and money creation has really taken up. So there's this really nice book by uh, Stefan Eich. It's called The Currencies, Currency of Politics. And it's uh, actually starts with Aristoteles and is a history um, to today of uh, philosophers on the topic of money. And he really shows nicely how there has been this um, yeah, wave, this depoliticization and politicization of money. And it's the same with uh, the book by Jakob Feinig, uh, also how money got politicized and depoliticized. So yes, I really think that, I think that right now we're starting to, like since the financial crash, the politicization of money is growing. So one of the things that I would like to spend more time thinking on is how can these insights help us if, you know, when shit hit the f- hits the fan, when the climate crisis gets really bad and we really have, like, yeah, I, I really can imagine that. Um, so, for instance, right now the ECB is um, doing some climate action because it's important for price stability. So um, they are requiring commercial banks... Um, to uh, disclose and price risks. And they think that through that, there's going to be an allocation of um, new money, so uh, lending that is in line with the Paris Agreement. And, uh, well, I don't really expect that to be sufficient anytime soon. And, you know, also when you look into the regulation, there is no punishments for not meeting the requirements. It is a yearly meeting you know maybe with some strong words and then that's that just like the ipcc conferences (laughs) yes uh i think but the difference is that these ecb uh, the ecb has a responsibility for the financial system to stay stable yeah and so and for instance if you make a comparison with the ipcc they don't necessarily have uh they don't hold anything over the countries, I think. Yeah. But the ECB does have a responsibility to ensure that these commercial banks are future-proof. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know what? If if you're willing, I could read one of these books and we could yeah. discuss them in an, uh, yeah. in the next episode because I think it's too much to get into everything now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating to me in the same way that I think like one of the most things we need now is lawyers. Yes. Um, to get things done in the climate crisis, we need yeah, lawyers. Yeah, I, I heard with your in your previous with I think Aaron Cherry, mm-hmm. who said that there's now lawyers who are resisting yeah, to prosecute yeah. climate activists, and I was so happy to hear it. And I, that would be such a good thing also here in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, yeah, yeah because I mean I saw some of the uh, of the open by ministry, the public yeah. uh, prosecutor prosecutor yesterday who was prosecuting yeah. peaceful climate activists yeah. uh, but also the language they were using was like a lot of the same language you get in your twitter feed exactly about, yeah yeah but you just came back from uh, winter sports oh, and crazy, you're yeah. hypocritical and all it's crazy the uh, i think lucas put it nicely one of the defendants uh that you know it's insane the energy uh, that they're putting into uh, prosecuting us compared to, you know, the way that they're prosecuting Shell for how they fucked up Groningen yeah. with their gas uh, operations. Yeah. Uh, are you ever worried that that uh, engaging in, in civil disobedience like you do, that it might have consequences for you, like long term? 
like you work at the university you you want a career uh, yeah yeah i mean there's not much of a career if i don't do it yeah. and i mean of course i could kind of free ride um you know and it, it might take a while and yes i worry about it is the honest answer um instead of the how do you say smart reply but i worry more about climate change and um and yes i was just i was going to the nature area this afternoon and i was really noticing that you know some days the climate crisis weighs heavier on you than other days and i was really noticing that it was really weighing heavy on me and i have this friend who not even thinks of the climate crisis every day like once a week maybe and i just cannot imagine how nice that would be um and yeah you know because my work is on climate crisis and then the activism and so it's kind of always there this is also really why i didn't read the uh, book yet um because you really need to take you really need to unload your it's not even your brain but your whole body once in a while too because she cannot be in a crisis the whole time. No, at least I cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I worry about all those things. And I really um, don't like putting myself at risk. It's really nice that I was for a very long time the only person in my, in my department who was doing civil disobedience, who was you know doing and climate activism. And then half a year ago, uh, one... A colleague joined and now another colleague joined and maybe two others are also joining for the September protests. But it's really, um, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's. uh, It's a struggle. Yeah. 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 And I also feel now I have like a more permanent contract again. But before I I was first on this one year PhD contract and then. Only after I submitted a paper, I got like uh, more years. And I really remember being careful with what I was saying on Twitter. And now I know that it's not so easy for me to get fired. Yeah. But um, I recognize that I feel I have a new job that's starting soon. And I know that I can be uh, be more free to to express myself uh, in social media and everything like that. And I think there's just not a neutral position, you know, and I just keep pushing myself to put myself in uncomfortable positions. Also, when I was at these conferences, at each conference, I proposed that I would do a climate talk and or not even a climate talk. I, I just wanted to say, you know, when so many academics get together, I just wanted to say, because I know that I learned from activism that all things start small. So if, if I could do like a two minute thing on scientist rebellion, maybe one new group would start in yeah. a month. You know, I think the most important thing, if you want to start taking action is find like-minded people. So go to a meeting and, you know, you'll always find someone to get along with. So always someone will take, sh- take you on board and it just makes everything so much uh, easier when you do it together. Um, and at the first conference, the, um, uh, the organizer said, we want to keep it uh, scientific. And, and and I really don't like proposing these things because I'm always scared that um, 
that people will, will reject you, you know, what I was talking about in the beginning. Yeah. And I remember being at this uh, sustainable finance lab meeting a year ago and the minister who was in charge of the fossil subsidies was there. And then there was room for questions and, and not, and, and so I, I, I stood up and I asked this question and I, because I wanted to ask this question and I was so afraid of what the people in the room would think about me because they all, um, you know, might be my future employer. They're all people from academia and the financial sector. And I was so afraid. But then what I, when I'm holding back because of those, these kinds of considerations, I always remember this clip that I saw during the forest fires in Australia in 2018. There were these koalas. Yeah. So they were on the, in the top of the trees and yeah. they were screaming on the top of their lungs because they knew they were on a, they, they, they were going to burn. Yeah. And so always when I'm scared, I think back to then and I hear the screeching. And then, you know, what I am doing is not that scary yeah. anymore. And uh, yeah, and, and that is for me a way to, to push myself because I really, I, Roger Helen put it, put it nicely last week. He said in a conference call with a group of Dutch activists, he said, um, you know, in 10 years, we're all going to regret that we, that we didn't do more today, regardless of what we do. And I really think that is true. Um, and also I know that, but there is, but it's also soothing in the sense that whatever you do, it's not going to be enough, but I really want to, so with the burnout, you really learn to get to know your physical boundaries. And so I really want to be on the you know, maybe verge is the right way to put it. I don't know, but to be on the verge of my physical boundaries to with within my, you know, what is physically possible for me, I want to try to do what I can and you can always do more. And I, there's, I admire so many people who are taking much more adequate action that I am taking. Um, and, but yeah, you know, pushing myself in these kinds of situations is, yeah, it just breaks the, you know, what Chris also discussed in his episode with you, the pluralistic ignorance that everyone is thinking um, that the others don't care, but everyone cares. They're just not talking about it. And yeah, like breaking through that silence is scary, but very important. Because we didn't mention it yet, but you're on the, let's say the exit of a burnout, right? Yeah. The last yeah. stages where you had yeah. a burnout. Uh, you know what? I think we. Uh, I think actually, probably this is enough, and I hope you we can discuss another time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, would be great to speak about more in depth about money. Yeah. Like where where can we go? Because that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And also, burnout. Because I I don't think I ha I had a burnout. I think I was almost yeah. there. But um, yeah. But maybe just to to close off because I know. Many people are struggling with this. Uh, sometimes people say like, yeah, why Why do young people, why are they so concerned with climate and busy with it all the time? They get problems because of that. They get stressed, but actually they get stressed because of the inaction, yeah. right? So, but do you, did you learn anything that you could maybe, uh, okay, I'm going to ask you two things. Like, okay. did you learn anything about how to keep it healthy for yourself, mm -hmm. for yeah. people who are listening to that who... Yeah. yeah, also busy with this maybe, with burnout. Yeah. 
And the other one is like, uh, why should people come on the 9th of September? Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing is to, I think it's a couple of things, but uh, one of them is be very, get very clear for yourself what your priorities are. So you can, I now sometimes think, maybe this is also because I'm researching money, but I now sometimes think of my energy levels as my bank account. And with my bank account, it's very clear when I reach the end of my bank account. And with your energy levels, it's sometimes not that clear. So I really carefully think about how do I want to spend my energy? And then I also really stick to it. And one, one of the very concrete ways that I do it is that I have both on my computer, on my laptop and my um, mobile phone, I have this app blocker. So I really, um, have, so I um, no longer spend a lot of time on my, when I work, I really work. I really don't do Twitter when I work. Yeah. So that when I'm, so that I finish my work in time to after that go to uh, Twiska, my favorite uh, <laughs> nature spot. You you learn to focus your attention and not yes. waste your yeah. your attention as a form yeah. of energy on yeah. social media or something yeah. when you're doing something and then you go you do energy creation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so today I didn't manage. I didn't have my blocks carefully, yeah. and then before I knew it, I spent one and a half hour on my computer, and I and I was really like, ah, oh, that's really, and it doesn't happen very often to me anymore. But now I really feel how that's a waste because I would have much rather spend one and a half hour more in my nature or in my nature park or in in the garden that we're very lucky to have. Yeah, so that is one thing. And then this other thing is to switch between focus and relaxation. And like one very simple tip that helped me so much is, well, first of all, this Pomodoro way of working. So where you work for 25 minutes and then... I generally close my eyes for five minutes. I do a meditation or something. And that really recharges you. And at the end of my working day, I um, am much less depleted than I otherwise would have been. And then I think walking for an hour a day. Uh, now that I'm almost back full time, I don't manage to do that uh, the way I used to. But um, I still really make an effort to do it as much as possible. It's just very restoring uh, for me and I think the last thing I would say on the top of my head is a bit more uh, work related is like when you're when for instance when you're working and you're doing procrastination to really check in with yourself you know why am I not working right now and I have these notes on my monitor Um, that helped me to get through those moments and the more that you get and then it becomes more of a habit and it becomes every time easier yeah so really ask like oh why am I procrastinating what am I afraid of what am I dreading and if you make that really concrete then often you realize oh I can handle it uh, so that was really helpful uh, to me Yes, why should people come on the 9th of September? We're fucked and we really need a climate policy now. And it's just not, your, the government is not no longer protecting us and we really need to stand up to ensure a habitable planet. I think it's really important, like what you said about the professors, because uh, that, peop that professionals uh, come. I'm really interested in this question where people 
say like civil servants for instance or lawyers or yeah. academics where they say well actually professionally speaking these this is a big thing and i i find it so important that professionally i'm going to be there yeah. So that's what I'm hoping for as well. I think we'll, that will contribute a lot as well. Do not just go there. I mean, you can go there. If, if you go there already, uh, you can look, who, who am I? What is my professional role? Or or it doesn't have to be like, a. you can be a professional mother or something, right? Mm-hmm. It can be like, what is my role in society? Yeah. Something that society values. You have even the grandmothers and the grandfathers and they're there. Exactly. Because there is no neutral position, you know? So if... If academics or uh, civil servants are not to allow to stand up, then who's going to protect us? You know, the bankers. Yeah, we can't really rely on that. And then I think if you join, and that's not a motivation, but I think if you'll join, you find that it is also emotionally uh, very restoring. And um, it's just really nice to be around people where you're not the weird one out. Mm-hmm. And specifically for scientists who worry about their objectivity, I, Chris always puts it nicely. He says that objectivity is a procedural quality. You know, we all also have industry scientists um, and it's about, you know, how you do your work, n- not who you are. And this other consideration is if you're worried about what people will think of you, if you... Um, fast forward 10 years, I think a scientist who participated in these climate actions is taken is going to be taken much more seriously. It's going to be much more credible, you know, acting on the facts. Yeah, you were on the side of science. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of um, not speaking out because most people weren't. I think that there is no neutral position and there's just... The majority is just an unmarked category, right? We are activists, but what are the people who are not coming to the A12? They're not, they also should have a name, I think, Mm -hmm. so that it becomes a bit uh, clearer that there is no sideline to the The climate crisis. The inactivists. Yeah, maybe, yeah. (laughs) But we don't know, uh, because I mean, I'd rather have like the people, the person in a boardroom of a huge company change something there and not go to the A12 than sure, the other way yeah. around, right? Yeah. I don't think that everyone needs to be a climate activist. And I think, you know, like the way you do it now with your being an ally is also very valuable. Um, but I say, like, I think all people should because eventually I think, like, most people should, right? And I think the amount of people... I get quite a few messages after a demonstration people saying oh well done i respect it blah 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 and i'm like yes great see you next time (laughs) see you next time and also or you know like as you do like write these op-eds or use your position to defend us and very few people are doing that and and i can understand it's scary but i think that I sometimes say hope is for children, action is for grown-ups because so many grown-ups are acting like children that the children are going to suffer. And one way to, you know, be a responsible grown-up right now is, you know, to take this serious and really start devoting a part of your time to help prevent untold suffering. Yeah, and that's what I like about because you're going actually on the road and maybe get arrested and then there's the people on the road that yeah. you know are there, but they don't get arrested, so they go when the uh, police warns them. 
but then there's all the people yeah. uh, like just looking and supporting and exactly I think that's that's very important as well that uh, I think for every person that gets arrested like four to ten people are working behind the yeah. curtains uh, behind this well whatever but even the people who just show up like they're not part of Extension yeah. Rebellion but yeah. they come there to say well I support the cause and uh, as, as, uh, as exactly. many people it's as possible super yeah. important yeah and but but just to say like if you want to join XR you don't need to get arrested you can also you can join in so many capacities like you can uh, make food for the people who get when they get released from prison you can uh, help the social media team you can help the legal team like there's so many things that need to be done that also if you want to do it anonymously uh, you can get an action name yeah so there's no need to get arrested well thank you so much for this conversation <laughs>